Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. Today, August 6th, marks the 68th anniversary of the atom bomb being dropped on Hiroshima, and Friday, August 9, marks the comparable anniversary for Nagasaki. For this week's interviews, we mark this by talking first with Carol Hisasue, who left Japan six years ago for a more peaceful life and ended up living in the United States only six miles from the Diablo Canyon nuclear power station. She fills us in on one set of commemorative events taking place in Northern California to mark this solemn anniversary. Then, in a powerful, deeply moving interview, I speak with Chikako Nishiyama, a former government official from Fukushima Prefecture, on her experiences immediately after the earthquake and tsunami that started the nuclear disaster at Fukushima Daiichi. This is the first first-hand account of that time that we've had on Nuclear Hot Seat. I urge you to listen. These interviews will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, August 6, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. We'll start out in Japan, where the news is just awful. Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority, the country's nuclear watchdog agency, said on Monday, August 5th, that radioactive water from Fukushima Daiichi is seeping into the ocean, creating an emergency TEPCO is struggling to contain. The contaminated groundwater has breached an underground barrier and is rising towards the surface. On Monday, TEPCO detected high levels of radioactive substances in groundwater collected at a monitoring well close to the turbine building of the number 2 reactor, where highly radioactive water accumulated in its basement. Radioactivity levels in groundwater soared 47 times over just five days ago. The level of radioactive cesium was 14 times higher than the reading logged just last Wednesday. Strontium and other radioactive materials that emit gamma rays were 46 times higher in that same time frame. TEPCO officials admit that they do not know the cause for the spikes and say that they will look further into how contaminated water has spread and what effects it has brought. TEPCO has come out of corporate denial and now admits that the tainted water is reaching the sea and has said that the radioactive discharge is out of control. TEPCO General Manager Masayuki Ono confessed that the situation was bleak. He said, We understand that this discharge is beyond our control, and we do not think the current situation is good. Yeah, think? The head of the country's Nuclear Regulatory Authority Task Force, Shinji Kinjo, told Reuters on Monday that the leak was an emergency, and he was worried that TEPCO had no sense of how to deal with it. The vice governor of Fukushima Prefecture has asked the government to take the lead in handling the matter and stop the leakage. Masao Uchibori told the officials from the Nuclear Regulatory Authority that some of TEPCO's measures have increased the risk of further leaks. Meanwhile, despite all the votes of no confidence, TEPCO prepares this week to start work on a new set of measures that would ring off and cap the area where the most highly contaminated water has been found. 
But some experts and regulators are saying that the battle to completely contain radioactivity to the site of one of the world's worst... Would they stop saying one of the world's worst nuclear accidents? I'm going to reread that sentence. But experts and regulators are saying that the battle to completely contain radioactivity from the world's worst nuclear accident may be a losing one. There's also a risk to changing the flow of groundwater in the ways that TEPCO is considering. This according to Tatsuya Shinkawa, a nuclear accident response director of the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. He said the water could pool dangerously underground, softening the earth and potentially toppling the remains of the reactor buildings, including spent fuel pool 4, which contains the radioactive equivalent of all 800 nuclear bombs that have ever been detonated. While a few media outlets in the United States have picked up this story, many of them take the type of tack taken by the Wall Street Journal, where two of their writers, Michael Arnold and Fred Dvorak, discuss the challenges for containment. Arnold said, Obviously, this is a massive public health issue. If, I emphasize his word, if it gets into the ocean, like it hasn't already, obviously this could be spread throughout the Pacific, could also get into the food supply. This is a warning that has been raised by Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network leader Kimberly Roberson. She's been saying this since less than a month after Fukushima began, and now the Wall Street Journal is finally catching up. Fred Dvorak responded, What many people are saying is that TEPCO will eventually have to process water, remove as much of the radioactive elements as possible, and dump a certain amount into the ocean that's relatively clean. Relatively clean. Nuclear Hot Seat asks, Fred Dvorak, Do you want to give your infant a sippy cup filled with water that's only relatively clean of radiation? This is flirting with numbnuts. So with the crisis building in Fukushima Prefecture at the nuclear power plant, or what's left of them, what does the government of Japan say to its people? They say that they will allow residents to return home to the Miyakoji district of Tamura, Fukushima Prefecture, beginning August 1st. Fortunately, very few individuals have opted to return. The district is located within the 20-kilometer exclusion zone around the nuclear facility. But the government had evacuation zone orders lifted in this area as early as April of 2012. A little premature, don't you think, boys? Back to TEPCO, where their actions just keep getting more heinous. Nearly 10,000 people who worked at the stricken Fukushima nuclear plant are eligible for workers' compensation if, again I emphasize their word, if they develop leukemia. According to figures compiled by plant operator Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, in July, 9,640 people who worked at the plant between March 11 of 2011 when the nuclear accident started and December 30 of 2011, meaning just that year, were exposed to 5 millisieverts or more of radiation. Now here's the banana peel. Workers can receive compensation if they are exposed to 5 millisieverts or more per year and develop leukemia one year after they began working at the plant. Now, leukemia usually takes 2 to 5 years to develop after exposure to low levels of radiation. And for those people who started working at the plant on this accident as of March 11th, they're way out of the period of time where they can be eligible for compensation.
This is made clear by the fact that only four people have applied for compensation for cancer. Their requests are currently under review. The Health Ministry of Japan acknowledges that it has no system to inform all workers of the standards for workers' compensation. It said it is considering distributing leaflets. How 1987 of you. Have you not heard of the Internet? Of Twitter? Free cancer screenings are offered by the Health Ministry and TEPCO, but are limited to those who are exposed to more than 50 millisieverts per year. This does not cover 90% of those who are exposed to 5 millisieverts or more per year. Unbeffin-leavable. Who are these people, and why are they allowed to get away with it? In Japan today, August 6th, there have been many solemn commemorations of the 68th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing. Some 50,000 people stood for a minute of silence in Hiroshima's Peace Park near the epicenter of the early morning blast of August 6, 1945. Up to 140,000 people were killed in that single blast. The bombing of Nagasaki three days later killed tens of thousands more. And while these bomb blasts have been credited with creating the surrender of Japan and ending World War II, there are those who believe that Japan was ready to surrender before the first bomb and certainly after the first bomb. But we had two and we wanted to test both of them. And so we did. There are over 200,000 victims of the atomic bombings, known as Hibakusha, with an average age of nearly 79. Many of them were gathered at Hiroshima to burn incense, bow in prayer, honor the dead, and pledge to seek to eliminate nuclear weapons. Hiroshima's mayor, Kazumi Matsui, said, The atomic bomb is the ultimate inhumane weapon and an absolute evil. The Hibakusha, who know the hell of an atomic bombing, have continuously fought that evil. The Hiroshima victims offered their support to those suffering from the accident in Fukushima. Over to the U.S.-Japan connection now. The effects of Fukushima are being taken seriously by at least one portion of the United States. Oregon health officials are actively monitoring the situation in Japan. Jonathan Modi, a spokesman for the Oregon Health Division, which oversees the state's radiation monitoring program, a state that has a radiation monitoring program, oh, California, you should be paying attention, Jonathan Modi said, Oregon officials aren't yet mobilizing in response to the news. At this time, Oregon environmental surveillance data does not indicate higher than normal levels of radiation in Oregon. But we are actively and on an ongoing basis monitoring the situation in Japan and will respond with enhanced efforts as appropriate. Which leads us to nuclear hot seat, numbnuts of the week. And it's shared by two individuals. David Yogi, who is a spokesmodel for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, has said, With the amount of dilution that would occur, any kind of release in Japan, meaning of radiation, would be non-detectable here. Oh yeah? It's been detected already, in case you haven't noticed. The second spokesmodel who's getting this award is Eric Norman, a nuclear engineering professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He said, The latest leak is not a concern. The Pacific Ocean is an enormous place, said Norman, 
who obviously failed to notice that his own school, UC Berkeley School of Nuclear Engineering, found radiation from the Fukushima nuclear power accident in California rainwater, milk, and plants soon after the earthquake and tsunami. But still, Norman said, there's a lot of material between us and Japan. No matter what happens in Fukushima, it's not going to be a problem over here. This is so not true. This is beyond spin speak. ENA News, for one, listed five links that counter all this spin, spin, spin. I'll have a link to the ENA News links up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. But for now, David Yogi and Eric Norman, you have the dishonor of winning this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Numbnuts of the Week. Around the U.S., lots of nuclear reactor problems. Last summer, a leaky tank led to the shutdown of the Palisades nuclear power plant in Michigan. So plant owner Energy patched up the leak, fired back up the reactor, and hoped for the best. The tank began leaking again, but it was only leaking a gallon a day, and the NRC has allowed it to leak up to 38 gallons a day. But on Saturday, August 3, the leaky drip turned into a gush, spilling nearly 80 gallons of radioactive water that contained radioactive tritium and possibly trace amounts of cobalt and cesium. This water was spewed into Lake Michigan. Early Sunday morning, the tank was ruled inoperable and Palisades began powering down. This is the fourth time in 2012 and the second time so far this year that the facility has been shut down. This past May, there was a leak of plutonium-laced water into Lake Michigan from the Palisades plants. According to NRC spokesmodel Victoria Mittling, there is no current timeline for when Palisades might resume service. How about never? Never would be good. The Farley nuclear plant near Dothan, Alabama, declared an alert on August 3rd. An alert is the second level of danger at a nuclear power plant after an accident and is only third from the top. That means that certain events could degrade or have degraded the level of safety at Farley. The facility is known to have the potential existence of defects in shield passive thermal shutdown seal system. Interestingly, Westinghouse partnered with Southern Nuclear Operating Company, the operators of Farley, to install this shield passive thermal shutdown in 2010. And in 2011, that exact same design won the Nuclear Energy Institute Top Industry Practice Award for Southern Nuclear. How's that working for you now, guys? The facility is still offline. Near St. Louis, the underground fire at the Bridgeton Landfill keeps burning towards nuclear waste at the nearby Westlake landfill. But nobody, no agency, is willing to take responsibility to do anything about it. County Executive Charlie Dooley said there is nothing they can do to mitigate the situation. Quote, this is a state and federal issue. Now, we support that something needs to be done, but again, it's in St. Louis County, but it's an EPA issue and it's a state issue. Epic ass-covering. 
The state of Missouri says there are significant deficiencies to the 425-page contingency plan submitted by the landfill owner, Republic Services. Local authorities are studying the contingency plan carefully. Matt Levanchi with the Pattonville Fire Protection District nearby said, Words can't explain how important this is. But the state of Missouri is studying the contingency plan. The Missouri Coalition for the Environment puts it best. Ed Smith, their safe energy director, said, The data show clearly that the subsurface landfill fire has moved beyond the equipment that was meant to stop its advance towards tons of radioactive wastes left over from the purification of uranium for nuclear weapons. Essentially, the fire line is breached. The EPA stated at a January meeting on Westlake that the landfill fire was 1,200 feet from the radioactive wastes. Last week, the Attorney General said the landfill fire was 1,000 feet from the radioactive wastes. That means it advanced 200 feet in six months, which translates into a maximum of two and a half years to clear this out before nuclear waste hits the fan in St. Louis. A little bit of good followed by not good news out of Florida. Duke Energy has decided to kill the $24.7 billion nuclear plant it planned to build in Levy County, Florida. That means the crippled nuclear power plant in Crystal River that's being closed down will not be replaced. Woohoo! Almost. Because under a controversial Florida law, consumers have been paying for Levy in advance of construction. Legislators promised that this advance fee would get nuclear projects built both faster and cheaper. But in the case of Levy, it did neither. The bottom line? Duke customers may end up paying roughly $3 billion for Crystal River and Levy because the advance fee law does not require Duke to refund any of the money that has already been spent on the Levy project. Duke stands to pocket at least $150 million even with the plant not being built. They must have studied at the feet of the producers. Florida State Representative Mike Fasano said, Shame on Duke Energy, Progress Energy, for taking the public on this ride, knowing that they were never going to build the nuclear plants. Shame on them. But, Mike, these people have no shame. Being pro-nuclear means you never have to say you're sorry. Moving up to the Savannah River site, Energy Department personnel pretending to be terrorists reached a substance representing nuclear weapons fuel after they fought through defenses in a January exercise at the Savannah River site in South Carolina. Targets in a series of force-on-force exercises conducted at the facility concluded the H. Canyon complex, which can contain up to several tons of weapons-usable uranium and plutonium, was vulnerable. A representative of the watchdog group Project on Government Oversight said, Our protective forces are being tested and failing at the most basic levels. They should be accurately and completely identified and fixed by the entities we trust to secure them, because the next break-in might not be so peaceful. His reference is to the action taken by Sister Megan Rice, a Buddhist nun, and two of her associates, who staged a peaceful protest armed mostly with Bibles and graffiti, for which they were brought up on charges of sedition, found guilty, and are now facing the possibility of 30 years in federal jail as a result of their demonstration. 
All they did was give us an advance warning of exactly how easy it is to break in. The Japanese and U.S. governments are discussing a visit to Japan next spring by U.S. President Barack Obama. It would be his third visit to Japan, but he has not been to that country since November of 2010, four months before the disaster began at Fukushima Daiichi. A call has gone out to the environmental, pro sustainability, anti nuclear movement to put out a press release and write on blogs calling for President Obama to visit Fukushima should he go to Japan and view the nuclear devastation. I predict that he won't want to, as his major donors come from the nuclear world, but public opinion is powerful and we have an opportunity to grab the top spot in this discussion. A bit of international news before we move on to our interviews. In Israel, serious damages have recently occurred in building number four of the Dimona nuclear complex. This is where the recycling of radioactive materials is performed. This accident, which is blamed on a technical defect, has caused radioactive materials to leak within 18 miles around the nuclear facility. Because of the accident, the symptoms of radioactive materials have been seen in the bodies of 38 employees of the nuclear complex. News from the Soroka Medical Center in Beersheba, which is 19 miles from the Demona site, state that 13 deformed babies have been born there in the last three months. Demona was the first nuclear power plant in Israel, established in the Negev Desert in 1950. Many nuclear specialists, both native to Israel and foreign, have warned Israeli officials about the end of the useful life of this nuclear facility. And the dangers that may be caused due to the exhaustion and embrittlement of this nuclear plant. In Taiwan, they take their battles over nuclear so seriously that fistfights broke out on the floor of the Taiwanese parliament. Punches were thrown, fists were raised, people got angry, they threw water on each other on Friday, August 2nd, as a political battle over a nuclear power plant turned into an all out brawl. The fight took place ahead of an expected vote that would authorize a referendum on whether to finish a fourth nuclear power facility on that densely populated island of 23 million. Construction on the plant began in 1997, but was halted between 2000 and 2008, when Taiwan's main opposition party, the Democratic Progressive Party, was in power. A spokesman for the DPP told the Taipei Times. The DPP believes the plant should not be built without a complete safety assessment and a national referendum is unnecessary. Oh my gosh, they're radicals, they're hippies, they believe in safety. Ah! He went on to say commercial operation of the plant would threaten the life and property of the Taiwanese and endanger the island's sustainable development. The party has long opposed nuclear power generation on safety grounds, particularly given the high incidence of earthquakes. On the island. Despite the protest, the referendum bill is expected to pass easily because of a large nationalist majority in the 113 seat legislature. Listen to the spin speak in this one. In South Korea, fishery products are nearly free of radiation, and so the government says it is safe to eat. What the ministry calls a very small amount. Of radioactive material was detected in kombu, a type of seaweed. A very small amount of iodine was detected in six samples of tangleweed, another form of seaweed.
So when you take a look at all those yummy seaweed snacks being exported from Korea, you might want to take a pass. And yesterday, August 5th, marked the 50th anniversary of the passing of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. In a major article written by Joseph Mangano and Dr. Jeanette Sherman, they stated, The superpowers agreed to end all nuclear weapons tests in the atmosphere, water, and outer space on August 5, 1963. This sharply reduced the amount of dangerous nuclear fallout in the human diet and saved thousands, perhaps millions, of lives worldwide. It's a wonderful article and too long to go into here. We will link to it on the website. Time for our interviews. The first is with Carol Hisasue. She is a former Japanese media professional who gave up her pressured lifestyle to move to a more peaceful life in the United States not realizing how close she'd be living to two highly contested nuclear reactors. She now works with San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace and shared with us a vision of their annual commemoration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Listen for the moment in the interview where Carol talks about one of the speakers at the Hiroshima Memorial event, and I see the opportunity to secure one of the most important interviews ever held on Nuclear Hot Seat. Carol Hisasue, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. First of all, give us a sense of your background and what brought you into the anti-nuclear movement. I lived and worked in in Japan, in Tokyo, uh, mostly in media, radio, television, print, for decades. It was very stressful. Um, You know, eventually I had a, a little tiny meltdown of my own and decided to quit all of that, find a place where I could, you know, just have a a better, more sustainable, healthier life. And after searching and searching and searching for several years, uh, I found this wonderful little ranch in Los Osos in San Luis Obispo County, moved here with my husband, started gardening my own food, uh, you know, just slowing down my pace. And it was just like living in paradise. And I was so happy. How long ago was it that you moved to the States? I moved here in 2006. So, so I had uh, basically, you know, four wonderful years of, of living in paradise, or what I thought was paradise. What changed that for you? It was the incident in Fukushima on March 11, 2011. You know, I knew that there was a nuclear power plant here. I mean, it it comes in your title report as one of the disclosures along with, you know, mineral rights and this and that and the other thing. So I knew it was here. Um, I I even knew, you know, how how close it was, like less than 10 miles away from where I lived. And I've never been, you know, a lover of nuclear energy. My husband and I have always been against it. But we were just so cavalier about it and just casually thought, oh, well, you know, we'll join forces with the local anti-nuke activists to help shut it down. And I just, you know, regarded the whole thing way too casually. Well, Fukushima changed that completely. It was almost like post-traumatic stress syndrome. Somebody said it was pre-traumatic stress syndrome because I'm worrying about what might happen here that hasn't and may not ever happen. But, you know, as long as the nuclear power plant is here, I it was just driving me nutty. I realized that the only way for me to stay even remotely sane was to do something. 
And that's when I uh, contacted Mothers for Peace, asked them if I could help them with anything. I had language skills. There was a lot of information coming from Japan. I thought maybe I could help them with that. Then it turned out not only was I helping them with the language, but then they started making TV shows. I had a background in video production. You know, many other small little tiny skills that came in handy. So here I am. Regarding the latency period that we all seem to have been living with, not understanding that we had a nuclear danger in our own backyard. Wherever we live, we have a nuclear danger in our backyard. Arnie Gunderson recently has coined the phrase, 40 good years and one bad day. All it takes at a nuclear facility of any sort is one bad day, and we are really, to use some G-rated language, really messed up. There's other language I might use. So. In terms of your work with San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, we are now at the anniversary of the bombs being dropped on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What is the organization doing in connection with commemorating those two bomb droppings? Well, every year, Mothers for Peace, you know, we do have a memorial event either on Hiroshima Day or Nagasaki Day because we see that the whole nuclear industry is all connected. It's not just about power plants. It's not just about nuclear arms. It's just one big, horrific industry. So we have always commemorated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This year, coincidentally, we had a request from a Buddhist monk who lives in Los Angeles. Uh, He's been there for the past 20 years or so. And he wanted to do a peace walk from Vandenberg Air Force Base near Lombok to San Luis Obispo, and then from San Luis Obispo City Hall to Diablo Canyon, and also do a three-day fast and vigil in front of uh, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant gates. So first off, that came up, and I started helping Reverend Sawada uh, with his walk, the route, and you know all the logistics involved. Then for some strange reason, an anti-nuclear activist, Chikako Nishiyama, said that she would be coming to the West Coast around the same time. Was that intentional that she be here at the same time as the anniversaries of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Not at all. She started her visit in May, and it just so happened that she was going to be in this area or coming through here around the same time. So then we started developing an event, and we thought maybe Friday night would be a good time for it. And so on August 9th, which is Nagasaki Day, we will be doing an event in town, uh, San Luis Obispo, at a gallery called the Steinberg Gallery. I will have a link to it on the website. Now continue, because you're going to have as speakers Reverend Gyosin Sawada, who is the monk who will have been fasting and doing the peace walk, you will have Chikako Nishiyama. And what is her connection and her perspective on what is happening over in Japan? She used to be a city councilwoman in Fukushima Prefecture. And she's currently on a speaking tour of North America and has been going around telling people what's happening in the lives of the people in northeastern Japan. I think the biggest concern right now for many activists in Japan is how the government is covering up and or just uh, making light of the dangers of radiation. What the country wants to do is they want to recover. They want the country to go back to normal. And so in its haste to do so, they're sweeping Fukushima under the rug and ignoring the fact that it's still poisoning not only the area around it, but you know possibly the entire world. 
Worst of all, the evacuees are being urged to return home, even though decontamination efforts aren't complete. Meanwhile, children are being diagnosed with thyroid problems. Many have symptoms of radiation poisoning. Cancers are being detected. The workers who were at Fukushima during the early critical days are dying as well. Also, the volunteers who went to those evacuation sites and were involved in relief efforts, they're also developing cancers. Well, we have no data about any of this in terms of direct relationships between what's going on in, in their health and radiation. Or the government does, but they're covering that up. They don't want people to know. They don't want the country to, quote, unquote, panic. And that's been the word from day one of this entire disaster, I think. Right. It's about controlling public response as opposed to having an appropriate response to the radiation. And I think it's clear across the board with any nuclear accident that there is intentionally no data collected so that later on down the line when people start making claims, the government can say, well, there's no data to back that up because they never take the baseline readings. Exactly. And so they're needlessly endangering their own citizens. I consider what Japan is doing to its citizens criminal because it's almost that they are committing genocide against their own people and their own future for the sake of the illusion of an economic recovery that's not going to take hold and it's not going to sustain itself. Tell us about the third speaker you have. Okay, the third speaker is Cecile Pineda, a wonderful author who mm -hmm. has written the fabulous book, Devil's Tango, How I Learned the Fukushima Step-by-Step. Step. It's a, quite an interesting book. It's not an ordinary narrative. It's kind of like a diary of all these things that have been going through her mind ever since March 11th of 2011. And I think she speaks for a lot of people and the, the different emotions we go through. And then we start looking into what this disaster means. And then we start finding out more and more about the whole nuclear industry and how demonic it is that's the only word i can think of from you know from the mining process to using the depleted uranium and bombs to lab accidents and processing plants things have been going on for decades and you know i'm ashamed to say i had not a clue until i started looking into all of this as well I have to admit that I was in the same place as you because after Three Mile Island, the impact on my life was so extreme that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress, but we didn't know the phrase back then. I just, you know, my definition was I was a looney tune. I was off the wall. I was incapable of doing anything that made any sense. And the little bit of activism I tried to do at the time, I simply could not sustain. So I backed away from it and ignored Chernobyl. Because I figured, okay, I've already been afraid of a nuclear accident. Let everybody else be afraid. I know what that's all about. And it wasn't until Fukushima that I kind of got kicked back into consciousness to follow these threads and saw what had been happening. So we're on parallel tracks here. And by the way, we did, uh, I did interview Cecile right when her book first came out around the first anniversary of Fukushima. Oh, yeah. And I agree. It is a marvelous read. She's a terrific writer. And it is not a didactic, fact-laden, your eyes cross from the depression of it all. She really does bring an artist's sensibility yes. to it and a beautiful sense of languaging all the way through. 
I agree. And so we're we're very, very fortunate that, you know, once again, she happened to be on a book tour and she was able to be here for this event on the 9th as part of her book tour. So it seemed like there was a confluence of, I don't know, energies or something happening here. Well, it's good because here in California, our next focus is, of course, Diablo Canyon. And having gotten San Onofre shut down in Southern California, we certainly have ongoing battles with that, with the waste and with who's going to pay for it and with the ongoing shenanigans of Southern California Edison. But the next big battle in the state is probably going to be the focus on Diablo Canyon and getting that shut down. So my question to you is, what do you see as the next actions that are going to be taken by San Luis Obispo, Mothers for Peace, and any of the other groups up in Northern California? There are many demonstrations and rallies and uh, things being planned, you know, uh, not only here but further north. But for me personally, I believe that what we need to do is to focus on educating and letting people, you know, ordinary people understand what is happening because there are a lot of great leaders in the in the movement and uh, various personalities but in the end the end of this whole nightmare will have to come from the masses the people who attend rallies quietly maybe without signs or the people who can't go but support the nuclear free world in their hearts i was talking to reverend sawada when he arrived here the other day and we were talking about in japanese there's this word called nen which means desire, but more like a deep, pure, heartfelt kind of wish. And he and I believe that it's the men of people around the world for a nuclear-free home, our planet Earth, which can one day bring an end to this madness. And he, he thought that maybe the reason why San Onofre was able to be shut down was because the men, this, this wish of the community became strong enough. So I'm hoping that you know we can get that same kind of spiritual desire going here in San Luis Obispo. If we were to support San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace and any of the actions that are going on in Northern California, where would we go to learn more and what could we do to support you? I think the best thing for people to do is to go to the Mothers for Peace website, which is mothersforpeace.org. We also have a Facebook page, which is a wonderful page, and every day there's just tons and tons of information about what's going on, you know, just in worldwide nuclear industry, different, you know, links, and it will post information about events and actions and, um, you know, many other things. Educate yourself. I think that it all starts there. And what do you plan to do in your ongoing work either with Mothers for Peace or with your media abilities to help spread this information? Well, in the future, um, we'll continue making public access TV programs on different aspects of nuclear energy. Right now, we're working on the waste issue, which is a huge, huge, huge issue because, you know, obviously no one's ever thought about what to do with nuclear waste. Right, and that's never part of the cost when they estimate how much these things are going to cost to build and maintain, and it's never factored into what the decommissioning process is going to cost. Exactly. So when we're just talking about nuclear, you know, power plants, it is such a a horrible way to boil water. 
you know, because that's, that's the only thing that this nuclear reaction is doing is, is creating enough heat to boil water, and there must be better, safer, cleaner, cheaper ways of doing that. Oh, I can think of about half a dozen just off the top of my head, and I'm no engineer. <laughs> yeah, I think we all can, you know. Well, Carol, it's great to know that you are in the movement, that you are supporting it. Are you going to be walking with the walkers at all? Yes, I'll be walking from City Hall in San Luis to Diablo Canyon on Hiroshima Day. And then we'll be um, doing the fast and visual. I don't think I will be fasting for 24 hours for three whole days, but Reverend Sawada will and maybe others will as well. We also have uh, members of the Native American tribes participating with us in our fast and vigil and possibly the walk. So that should be an interesting group of people there. This is a day that there are going to be commemorations held literally around the world. So it's good to know what's happening in Northern California. And as your group has any other actions you would like us to know about, please send an email to nuclearhotseat.com. I'll be happy to pick up on it and pass the information along. Okay. Thank you so much. That was Carol Hisasue of San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace. Because of our interview and the information that Carol shared, I was able to secure an interview with Chikako Nishiyama. She gives us a stunning vision of what it was like in Fukushima Prefecture immediately after the earthquake and tsunami, and what it took to find out that there was a problem at the local nuclear power plant. Carol Husasue provides the translation, and most of the Japanese has been edited out. Give the listeners a sense of where you come from and how directly you have been involved with the disaster at Fukushima. I was on the city council of Kawauchi Village in Fukushima Prefecture. So even before the accident, I was involved with safety issues uh, relating to the nuclear power plant, involved with uh, negotiations with governments, and very deeply involved in all uh, issues relating to the village and the nuclear power plant. Since the disaster, the Kawauchi village, my village is only 30 kilometers away from the nuclear power plant. And so I've been even more involved. Um, Recently, there's been a call for evacuees to return back to the village. I believe that there are processes that need to be We need to go through certain processes before we can return the evacuees, but they're trying to rush through it, and now I'm involved in negotiations with the government and TEPCO and trying to relay their responses to the world at large. Before 3.11 of 2011, what were the problems that the community faced from TEPCO and from the nuclear reactors? We frankly didn't feel that there were any problems with uh, the nuclear power plant before March 11th. TEPCO and the local governments worked together. Uh, They kept telling everybody how safe everything was. And furthermore, they employed many of the people from the village. They had about two or 300 people, employees from our village alone. Where were you when the earthquake and tsunami hit? And what happened to you in the immediate aftermath? Basically, uh, the Kawauchi village was not affected by the earthquake or tsunami. So immediately what happened on the 12th was that a nearby town, Tomioka, 
which was hit by the earthquake and tsunami, had many refugees, and they decide they had a city council session to welcome these refugees to their village. And so they were working hard to prepare accommodations for the refugees when suddenly I noticed that there were two strange-looking vehicles that were passing by and going and heading southwest. I looked to see who was in the car. They sort of looked down as if they were trying to hide their face. I looked closer and saw that they had masks. Well, as it turned out, they were uh, TEPCO employees, probably upper management, who were aware of the impending explosion and were basically running away from this area. We had no information coming to us at all. In fact, when we found out about the the nuclear accident, all that we could get was the government and media telling us that there were no health effects, everybody was safe, so please stay in place. And we just kept on volunteering and helping refugees from other towns. On the 15th, at about 11 o'clock, they gathered the firefighters and city councilmen together and told us to go home and stay indoors. This was the first time that we had any sort of warning about radiation. They told us to tell all the residents of our village to evacuate to wherever. They had no idea where they were going, uh, no plans for evacuation, but they just said, leave the town. On the morning of the 16th, we all decided to go to Koriyama City. That's northwest of where we are. And we were told that we had to get all the residents out of our town by the afternoon. I went up to Sendai. My son was living there, so I went further north, and and Sendai was hit even worse by the tsunami and earthquake. As I was going towards Sendai, about 10 kilometers from Kawauchi Village, my village, I saw several big self-defense force trucks, and I saw that the people inside, they were changing into hazmat suits. So then I realized that the radiation was already everywhere and that we were already contaminated, even though the government failed to tell us any of this. At any rate, I went up to Sendai to where my son was. The others from my village were in Koriyama, so I felt I had to go back, but I had no gasoline for my car, so I couldn't return until the end of March. When I did return and went to Koriyama, where the other evacuees from my village were, I found that they were living in a cardboard village. It was very sad. They had no privacy. People were in in mass places, and they had no way of putting up walls between families. As I was a city councilwoman, I worked with the local government while I was in Koriyama. But my parents and my sister had already evacuated to Saitama, which is next to Tokyo. Um, They did this on the night of the 11th, and my son was in Sendai. So for the next several weeks, I just traveled back and forth between Saitama, Koriyama, and Sendai. What steps did you take at that point that led you on the journey that has brought you now to the United States in this speaking engagement? In... June of 2011, we had council sessions again, and at that point, TEPCO told us that they were uh, doing the cold shutdown, everything was okay, and there was nothing to fear, even though Koriyama was already contaminated. So I proposed that everybody evacuate from Fukushima Prefecture, from the entire prefecture, but no one listened. In September, they decided that we should go back to Kawauchi Village because it was 
less radioactive than some other areas in Fukushima. And they decided that we would start a decontamination project and then we can all return. In December of the same year, they told us that we can return, even though the radioactivity of the area was still quite high. The spent fuel pools were broken. Things were not under control at all at TEPCO. But just because Kawauchi Village was less radioactive than some of the other villages, they told us, yes, it's safe to go home. Let's all go home now. And that's what the government and the media kept proposing. On January 31st, they told everyone that they can return if they feel like returning. It wasn't that you had to return. It wasn't that you couldn't return. They said, if you feel like returning, please do so. At that point, the local government, of course, returned back to Kamauchi. I felt that the government wasn't telling, weren't, uh, they weren't telling the citizens of the danger, and this was completely wrong. So I decided to run for the mayor of the town, and we had an election in April of that year. I was running under the policy of continued evacuation and decontamination. But, of course, uh, TEPCO and the current go- the existing government had so much more backing, so I basically lost that election. After that, I tried to find a place for refugees from our village further south and west in Japan. I visited Kyoto and Shikoku and different parts of Japan. At the same time, I was doing a blog, and I found out that someone was looking for me. What happened was that the people from the Yankee Power Plant in Vermont had done a rally on March 11th, and they had written messages for the people of Kawauchi, uh, the people of Greenfield, had written messages to the people of Kalauchi because they are 30 kilometers away from a nuclear power plant, just like Kalauchi was. Uh, but they didn't know who to send the messages to, and they found me through my blog. Of course, the villagers are all scattered. It's hard to get the messages to one place. So I didn't know whether I should just have them mail the messages to me or not. And so I decided, well, I should go there and see these people personally and get the messages from them directly. And that began my involvement with the anti-nuclear activists in North America. What I'm doing in the United States, in North America right now, is since coming here, I've discovered that things are not that different from Japan, the way the governments work, the way the nuclear industries work. So um, I find things very, very similar to what has been going on in Japan. And so I want to tell people here um, about what's going on in Japan, and also to try to link with other activists so we can work together to end this nuclear age. Um, I realize that un- until we have no more wars, it's difficult to get rid of nuclear, the nuclear industry. But um, hopefully when there's peace worldwide, we can also have an end to the nuclear power generation as well. But in the meantime, we have to work together, not just in Japan or not just in the United States, but linking with different groups on a worldwide basis. Ask her if she has something she would like to end this interview on, a message for the listeners who are anti-nuclear activists around the world. I think every country has its own perspective on the problems of the nuclear industry, but I think we need to exchange information and work together for a safe world, for a nuclear-free world, for Fukushima to become safe again so that people can return, and I'd like just to continue working together with all the activists around the world.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Safe journey. And arigato for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so very so much. That was Chikako Nishiyama with interpreter Carol Hisasue. I want to share with you something that Carol wrote to me in setting up these interviews. She said, Many anti-nuclear activists, especially Japanese activists, see Hiroshima and Nagasaki not so much as the end of World War II, but as the beginning of an age of nuclear victims. Technically, of course, the beginning was earlier. Mining for uranium and testing of atomic bombs, which brought pain and suffering to many Native people. But Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and all the smaller or hidden accidents in between. They're a continuum. There is no difference. Thank you for those words, Carol Hisasue. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment, but first... I want to thank those of you who donated to support my participation in this month's Excellence in Journalism conference. I was able to raise the necessary funds and am already signed up, so yes, I will be attending. Woohoo! The Excellence in Journalism conference gathers together more than 700 TV and radio news directors from mainstream media around the country. I look forward to making our issues known to those who decide what gets to be on mainstream media news every day. Now, the bullies from Fox who are in attendance may not like what I have to say, but there are plenty of independent-minded journalists and news directors out there who I am convinced can be successfully encouraged to cover their local nuclear stories. That's what I'm aiming to do, be a media lobbyist for our position. Listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat will be the first to learn how it went because I'll be sharing the stories right here the day after I get back. For those of you who helped me with your generous donations, my gratitude. I plan to do you proud. Here's the week's radiation protection tip, and it has to do with calcium. The chemical structure of strontium-90 is so similar to that of calcium that if there's not enough calcium in your body and you're exposed to strontium-90, your body will suck up the radionuclide and deposit it in your bones and teeth. There it will remain, continually emitting cancer-causing radiation. This fact led to Project Tooth Fairy, a study begun in the 1950s that collected children's baby teeth to study the presence of strontium. The results helped convince U.S. President John F. Kennedy to sign the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty with the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union, ending above-ground nuclear weapons testing. To protect yourself from exposure to strontium-90, which has a half-life of 28.8 years, so it will last 288 years, you might want to consider maxing out your body on calcium. My understanding is that it needs to be taken with magnesium in a calcium-to-magnesium ratio of 3.5 to 1. Most calcium comes formulated with magnesium, but check your particular source to make certain. And as always, check with your licensed or certified health care provider beforehand to determine the proper supplementation level for you. I do not present myself as a licensed or certified health professional. I'm just a highly motivated individual who Googles for information a lot and who shares it here for information purposes only. What you decide to do with that information is up to you. Continuing my call out for a contact to John Stewart or any of his staff, I am John Stewart's nuclear pundit for The Daily Show. He's just not aware of it yet. So if you can help get the two of us together, let's do it. 
Send your leads to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Don't have a contact? Doesn't matter. Share my intention online in all your social media platforms. Now, I've added something to this. The person who provides the connection will receive, in addition to my eternal gratitude, a signed copy of an original photo of me at Three Mile Island while it was still leaking. This photo has never been published, and I promise you it is a doozy. Here's the final thought for this week. Halloween is coming up, and there's nothing scarier than nuclear. So what can we do to link our nuclear message to that holiday? One of my thoughts is to create a nuclear hell house. If you're not familiar with the concept, hell house is a technique used by the Christian right wing to indoctrinate its kids into their core issues. People sign up to receive script, prop lists, and presentation suggestions for creating a haunted house filled with scary messaging on everything this group is against. Gay rights, a woman's right to choose regarding her pregnancy, the whole list. Well, there's nothing scarier on the planet than nuclear. What it can do, what it has done, what it's still doing, and the fact that the mistakes we make today with it will live forever. So how might we harness all this information, this scary information, to create an anti-nuclear message around Halloween? Yes, it's still close to three full months away. This is called being active or proactive, not reactive. We plan, we implement, we set an agenda of our own that has the potential to be picked up by the media and spread further. So what would be a good Halloween-based way to present our scary information to the public? What might work in your community? How might we connect to existing Halloween events or create some of our own? I will be doing a special Halloween show on Nuclear Hot Seat, so if you've got any ideas, send them to info at nuclearhotseat.com. In closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 6, 2013. Material for this week's podcast has been compiled from... ENEnews.com, Reuters, Iring Press, Gigi, Kyoto, Asahi, NHK, Wall Street Journal, Japan Daily Press, JapanToday.com, ABC News, The Statesman Journal, Freesound.org, Grist.org, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, LAKE.org, Alabama Power, CBS St. Louis, Missouri Coalition for the Environment, TampaBay.com, National Journal, Huffington Post, What'sUp.com, WorldNews.com, Yonhop, Counterpunch, Radiation and Public Health Project, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community with shout-outs to the Coalition Against Nukes and Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network for the ongoing work of both groups and the support you have given so freely. Our archive is available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. The blog page has all kinds of enrichment information, links, pictures, videos, and a mini-description of each week's content. Lots of information to enrich your growing understanding of nuclear issues. You can click on Archives, scroll down the blog page, and don't forget to leave your comments on the website or on either of the two Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook pages. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues or the counterbalance to all the pro-nuclear spin, spin, spin. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications, all rights are reserved, but I do allow fair use, so you have my permission to reuse this material as long as you include proper attribution, that would be my name, website, nuclearhotseat.com, 
forward slash blog and the email info at nuclearhotseat.com. And look at all the wonderful information you get to send to all your friends on Facebook and elsewhere. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, remember, do not go back to sleep.